Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, I have my good friend Ace Chapman on the line. Now, if you don't know who Ace is, I'll just give you a quick preview of why you might want to listen to today's show, and then I'll let Ace fill in the blanks. So Ace once said at dinner, we were having dinner together here in Austin, and he said, you know what? I don't buy sports cars. I buy businesses. <laughs> so Ace has been acquiring businesses, operating them and scaling them for quite some time now. And that's what we're getting Ace on the show today to talk all about. So Ace, welcome to the show. It is great to be here with you. You know, just even I love talking about this stuff. Even just the intro to this call has been fun. So excited about today's episode. Awesome. It's only up from here <laughs> or down. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. Let's see what happens. <laughs> awesome. So Ace, you've got a pretty interesting story and I'd love to start with maybe actually before we go into that, I was going to say your first acquisition, uh, which we'll get into in a sec. But when people ask what you do, how do you actually answer that question? So, you know, my main thing right now is that I'm the manager of a private equity fund. So that keeps it short and sweet. You know, before that, I was buying and selling businesses, which a little bit of a conversation starter, just because the average person has never considered buying or selling a business. Perfect. Okay, that's awesome. That is a good intro at a, a cocktail party. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's rewind and go right back to the first acquisition that you did. It's a pretty interesting story. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, so the very first acquisition was at a time when I was studying political science in New York and was excited about a career in law. My plan was to go to law school afterwards. You know, while I had been an entrepreneur for a long time internally, you know, I didn't really see that as a smart career. It was like, all right, you know, I want to be able to make money. Maybe I'll do something in business later. But this is something that I know I'm going to be able to make money at. Well, while I was in school, I, I still had that entrepreneurial bug and was interested in things like the stock market and had some buddies of mine I was in school with that were pretty prominent at some Wall Street banks. And I'm like, man, I'd love to play around the stock market. And at that time, there was a stock market simulator called Cool Wall Street. It was uh, basically a place where you could take virtual money and put it into the stock market. And if you did well, you won prizes and games and, and all of that. So I was just a user, you know, and had no intentions of investing or being a part of the business. But uh, just like a lot of the other users, I was frustrated by the fact that the site was always crashing. The customer support was impossible to get a response from. And, you know, it's like, here's a business that has so much potential, had, you know, a few thousand users, 
And it just seemed like the people running it just didn't care. So I reached out to them. So I figured they must just be overwhelmed and maybe I could go an intern for them for the summer and, you know, help them out and learn a little bit more about the market and this business and all of that. So when I reached out, I was surprised to get a response that basically said, we're not looking for interns. We want to sell this business because we moved on to another business that has a lot more potential. And it's funny because even the, you know, we closed on five and a half million dollar deal about a year ago. And the thing that people always ask me is, why would somebody sell something that's, you know, making over a million dollars and you know, don't have to do a ton of work on it? And the what that's still today, 20 years later, one of the biggest reasons is because they've got something bigger. So, you know, back then they had a small deal and they had something else they felt like had more potential. In the case of the $5 million deal, you know, he had a $50 million business that had the potential to be a $100 million business. So even if you just spend a few hours away from that business to work on the smaller $5 million deal, that was a very high cost. And that's what's the calculation that these guys have made is, you know, we can't spend any time on this thing. And so there I was, a 19-year-old kid who was absolutely broke. But, you know, I'm like, hey, like maybe I know somebody who wants to buy this. And I only asked that or told them that really because I was curious. I was like, I wonder what the price is. I wonder how much they're making. Back then, we had no concept. You know, it just it could have been a $100,000 business or a $100 million business. And it turns out that it was making 60000 and they wanted 70000 for it. Unlike today, where we know that's an amazing deal and barely one multiple, <laughs> you know, back then, you know, there was no way to know. And, and in fact, there were some deals that were selling at a 0.5 multiple back then. So, But I had no clue that even that existed. So my one comparable was that I was at a school that cost back then 35,000. Now it's over 50 grand, which is outrageous, but it cost 35 grand a year to go to school. And I have friends that were graduating and they were coming out of school making 30, 40,000. And so I'm like, all right, so 140 grand to make 40,000 or 70,000 to make 60. This seems like a good deal. <laughs> Absolutely. So at that point, you know, I'm trying to figure out how can I buy this thing? You know, where can I get the money to try to buy this thing? And got them to finance half of it and went to a buddy of mine that came from some money who actually was one of those Wall Street guys that I mentioned before his, his dad was. And he was like, oh, yeah, like I'll put 15,000 in. I'm like, you just have 15 grand, you know, for, for me. And I'm like, you have 15 grand lying around. Like, are you going to ask your parents for that? And he's like, no, I can do that. And so that was astonishing. But he put in 15 grand. And then, but I still had, you know, I only had $3,000. So I still had to come up with some more money. And this was at a time, I don't know if this happened in Australia or other countries, but back in the day, they've kind of kicked them off campus, I think now. But back in the day, credit card companies made deals with colleges to set up tables at colleges and basically recruit kids and convince them to get into this horrible debt <laughs> in exchange for t-shirts yep. and that, those kinds of things. And so I went and, and got three different credit cards and was able to get some cash. And, and that was how I made up the difference for the down payment. 
Wow. So I just got to pause right there. So that's probably the best use of credit card debt I've ever heard of, for starters. But there are so many micro points along the way in that story. You know, a lot of people ask, how do I get started? You got started because you saw the opportunity. But even though I think even at the beginning, when you were just reaching out to intern for the company, I think that shows your level of awareness that, hey, there's something wrong here. Maybe I can make it better. And you were, you were willing to intern to make it better. So having that curiosity, reaching out, not being afraid to put your hand up and, and ask questions has kind of got you started, got the ball rolling, right? So that's a pretty good intro to the first deal. Could you tell us a little bit about the deal structure on that deal? How did you actually take that deal down? If you had, if it was a $70,000 purchase price, you got 15 from your friend and three credit cards. I don't think that quite gets you to 70. So how did you bridge the gap there? Yeah. So they were willing to finance 35,000. So they did seller financing for the rest of that. And so I only had to come up with the 35. And so three of that was my own money and 17 was it. So that was, you know, but since the 3000 was all I had to my name, I literally at that point had a negative net worth of about 17 grand. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Yeah. But you had cash flow. So most people with credit card debt like that or debt in general don't have the asset on the other side. Maybe it's a nice car or a watch or something crazy, a huge holiday, but you actually had a cash flowing asset. So after, I don't want to spend too much time on this first deal, but after you actually took over the deal, what happened next? Yeah. So, you know, uh, it was actually a transition even in thinking, because while I was like excited to buy the business, I still was surprised that first week that I got deposits into my bank account. You know, I checked my bank account and I was like freaked out. I'm like, where did this money come from? <laughs> and, and realized like, oh, yeah, it's from the business. Like this thing makes money. Yeah. So that was definitely a sigh of relief that, you know, I, I wasn't scammed. This thing did make money. and. After that, when we bought it, it was right under 10,000 users. And the goal was to try to you know, grow it, obviously. If I could buy it at a one multiple and, and grow it, then it becomes a, a really incredible deal. So the first thing was just fixing up the service. And it's so funny how similar a lot of the work we're doing now is but you know we closed on a deal that's a, a SaaS business and just you know very similar situation smaller deal a larger company started as a side project and but just really neglected it and the customers weren't happy and and that kind of thing and and so the first thing we started with on that deal was just improving customer service and building a relationship with the customers that we had. So if you've got a really great business where the customers are raving fans, you don't really even sometimes want to announce that all that's been sold. So we've got a deal right now that we're closing. We're like, we don't want anybody to think that there's anything different about this business because it was already really well run. The brand was great. The reviews were awesome. So there's no reason to change anything. We, if anything, they're going to be concerned that it's going to go down. When you announce to a group of uh, users that the business has been sold and the customer service that they've been getting is horrible and unresponsive and all of those things, 
then there's like this glimmer of hope of, oh, wow, maybe these people will actually run this business well. And so we made that announcement. You know, I'm in my dorm room hustling. I give everybody access to my email and my phone number. And, you know, it's like, hey, like if you need to reach out, I'm here. You know, we're going to turn this thing around. And what we did was create a referral program because I realized that there were a bunch of nerds out there just like me. And keep in mind, too, there was a ton of novelty to things that to something like this back in 99. So just like today, people get really excited about some new thing that comes out. There was that kind of excitement when the Internet was brand new. So, you know, building those relationships with the user base, I realized, wow, okay, these people, there are some people out there out of those, you know, 5,000 or maybe 500 people that are just like me that, you know, they would work for free to make this thing grow and be able to connect in the forums with other people like them and talk about this stuff and, and nerd out on those kind of things when, you know, there weren't a lot of outlets for those kind of things. So a lot of the growth after that came from a referral program that we created. And it definitely went viral. You know, it it took a while, but from the point that I bought it to the and over the course of a two year period, we grew it to over 200,000 users. Wow, that's amazing. And then what did you no. do with the deal? Did you sell it? This again? was, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was biggest mistakes and biggest lessons before we jumped on. And this was definitely my biggest lesson that really crafted the business that I run and, and how I, or the strategy that I use today. And, you know, in 2000, we were approached by Ameritrade to sell the, our, the business because we had this huge database of young people interested in trading. And so it's like, yeah, like, you know, we'd love to buy this thing. And so got a really great offer. You know, I'm 20 years old, seven figure offer seems amazing. But I'm thinking things are going great. Like if we can get that, I can wait a few more years and get 10 figures or, you know, or eight figures, whatever. <laughs> so I'm just going to go, you know, I'm going to roll the dice. <laughs> well, the year after that, 2001, some of you oldies in this space will know was the dot-com bubble bursting, as they say. And so a lot, virtually most of the companies that we were doing business with that paid us for ads and, and that kind of thing went out of business or had to definitely cut back on what they were spending. And so we got hit by that really, really hard and ended up, you know, basically just shutting it down, sold a little bit, but it was to pay off liabilities. But I walked away with nothing outside of the income and savings that I had received or, you know, kind of built up while I owned the business. Wow, that's quite a lesson to learn. So from that deal, what did you do next? So uh, the first thing I did was <laughs> lick my wounds and sulk and be sad and, you know, woe is me because during that interim, I had been approached by investors who basically said, hey, we'd love to invest. This thing is growing like crazy, but we're not going to invest our money if you're going to be a student and try to run this thing from your dorm room. Like, we want to invest and have you run it and build a team and, you know, like any investor would. So I ended up leaving school. 
And, you know, it was kind of all in on this thing. Obviously, like at this point, had paid back dad, was making money. All of that stuff was great. But the upside was worth it for me to leave school. So now, you know, I don't have the business. I also don't have a degree. I'm like, well, you know, was I just completely wrong? You know, was this thing, this whole thing, just a huge mistake? And I kind of took two weeks just to kind of sulk and, and be sad, which, you know, even today I tell people, you know, when you have those failures like that, it's good to take a little bit of time, but then you got to bounce back. And it took me a while. I did some consulting for uh, SunTrust Bank because they wanted to attract younger people and minorities and, and that kind of thing. And so they were interested in like, how in the world did you grow this thing to 200,000 users as this 20 year old kid? And this is also a time where the internet just, it was just new. So that gave me some exposure mm, yep. to, because they, they were trying to recruit customers for their mortgage business. So while I'm doing consulting on for them to help them get more customers, I'm learning a lot about the mortgage business. And I'm like, man, like there's good money in this. This is interesting. You know, I can apply some of the lessons that I've learned with marketing online to mortgages. And then I start looking into what it takes to start a mortgage company. And it's, it just didn't hit me. And this is something that's interesting for, from back then. You know, guys listening to this or folks listening to this podcast are probably in the loop now where there's a podcast and blog post and information out there about buying and selling businesses. Because there it was just even today, I mean, it's like one percent of all media that's about getting into business is about buying or selling businesses. Back then, that one percent didn't even exist. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I, I was just I felt like oh, like there was this fluke thing where I, um, you know, got a, a deal, but you can't just go and do that again. And I just had this assumption that there was no way that you could do that. And then I decided, well, let me check and see. And, you know, came across some brokers and, and kind of discovered that. And long story short, I came across a mortgage company that was for sale and, you know, instantly was like, OK, like that was the first time that it clicked that this wasn't just a fluke. I could go out and just buy income instead of trying to work for income by doing consulting jobs like what I did for SunTrust or, you know, try to start a business from scratch and hope that it works out. So that ended up being my second deal, which led to a small roll up in the real estate space. Wow, that's amazing. You know, a lot of people would be thinking of this, thinking that first deal was you're just on a roll. Like, of course, you'll be able to go find other deals. But it's interesting to hear you say that even though you'd done that one, you've taken down this deal from nothing, that even you were hesitating to go out and do this again. And now, if we skip forward a little bit, we're definitely going to dig into more deals on yeah. other podcasts. So, leave some of that for later. So, right now, well, let's fast forward into, you mentioned you're managing a private equity fund right now. So what do you look for when you, you've got capital to deploy buying businesses? What are you looking for and how do you specifically, how do you think about 
online businesses versus brick and mortar offline businesses. Yeah, so that that was really neat to have done an internet deal and then move to offline, which I, I did for about eight years and did 17 businesses that were offline. So when it comes to private equity, the, the most important thing is a kind of security. You know, when I'm doing my own deals, it's a bit more being a cowboy. You know, I want to get out there. I want to get like some really aggressive terms. I want to, you know, kind of have some upside. I'm not afraid to get in there and do some of the nitty gritty work and make the deal happen. When it comes to private equity, it becomes a little different for several reasons. Number one, you have more capital to deploy. So now, not only is it not necessarily smart to do more of a renegade style deal where you're going to be hustling because you need to do more deals, you need to have put more of that money to work. It also isn't smart because you've got the money and those people are expecting you to deploy that in the smartest way possible. So in this space, the benefit that we have and, you know, now we're at a place where we're helping people start private equity funds but so that we can invest in, in those funds. The interesting thing is that we can get such great returns just buying, even if you pay cash. I mean, if you look at buying a deal at a three multiple, even paying cash, that generates a 33% return. Where else are you going to go and get a 33% return? Now, we don't do that, but you know, we kind of start there and then we work down, like how can we improve the return? So our goal in, in a deal is on paper for it to look like, all right, on a cash on cash return, we'll get a 50% uh, kind of return. And so that's how we want to structure the deal because number one, we know when we take it over from the seller, there's always going to be some kind of dip because you're never as a buyer, unless you have somebody who's neglecting the business, you're not going to know that business as well as the person that built it from scratch. That person's always going to have a leg up on you on being able to grow it. The second thing, though, is if, if you do want to grow it, then that's going to take reinvesting in the business. So if that's hiring customer service, if that's adding new features, if that's doing research on the competitors and seeing how they're, they may be beating your product and improving the product that way... All of those things are going to cost money, which is going to decrease your return. So if you're looking for a 30% return, you really have to structure the deal so that you're getting a 50% return in order for that to happen. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So having sometimes, even as entrepreneurs running your own business, you think that more capital will solve everything. Uh, sometimes that creates more of a burden because for you to get a return on the fund, do you need to get a return on all the committed capital or just the deployed capital? And do you have a timeline? Is there a set horizon for the fund to close? Yeah. So there's, there's always going to be a, a time horizon. But the great thing is you only pay returns on what's deployed. So for those that are maybe unfamiliar with how private equity fund works, essentially, when you raise the capital, those people aren't giving you a check right then. You know, you sit across from the person, you talk about what you're up to, you go through the prospectus, you go through all the legal leads and walk through that. And, you know, usually there's a lot of back and forth with a lot of investors. and then. You get down to the commitment and they say, yeah, we, we like it. We want to commit a million dollars. 
they don't write you a check for a million, but what they do, what they will do is sign a contract saying, you know, we're, we're committing a million and we'll give that to you as you need it, as you come across the deal. Because the last thing you want or they want is the money sitting in the account unused because you haven't closed a deal yet. And, you know, you're kind of building up the expense there to pay them. You will draw down some cash because, you know, a deal may come across that you want to jump on. But it's really unlike a hedge fund where somebody's sitting there at a screen and they need the cash available, you know, as soon as they see an opportunity in the market. You know, for these deals, we know, you know, at the minimum 30 days, if not 60, 90 days in advance when we're going to actually need to get the cash to the seller. Sure. And then you make that capital call, the cash comes in and you can close the deal. So, But there is an expectation, right? So say the investors said, we'll commit a million dollars to your fund mm-hmm. within seven years, five years, whatever the time horizon is. If you only ever call $100,000 of that million, what happens then? Yeah, they are not happy. <laughs> 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 because the yeah. the investor wants the return on that capital more than they want the capital, right? Obviously, they want the capital to be safe, but they need a return on their capital is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. So the, the key there, and it, I mean, it's one of the benefits to being a fund manager is, you know, they have to keep the money semi-liquid. So they can't go and commit that to another private equity fund. It has to be there and somewhat available. So they can make a little bit of return. It can be in the market. But they probably don't want it in anything that's too risky in the market because they made that million dollar commitment and it goes down, then you know they don't have that money there. So what happens that that's kind of neat for the fund manager is the fund manager doesn't necessarily have to use the money because no smart investor wants to tell a manager, okay, if you don't use this money, then you're going to have to pay me or you know, there's going to be a penalty. No smart investor wants to do that. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, the fund manager does tell the investor, if you do put this money in something else and you you lose money or whatever, you decide you don't want to invest the million in that example, then you will have a penalty. And and so it is a you know contractual agreement that they have to hold up their end, but the fund manager doesn't have to invest those funds if he doesn't feel like there's a good enough deal out there. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, you're not just rushing out trying to shovel the cash out the door, right? <laughs> exactly. And we've had funds where we've given some cash back at the end because you know we didn't want to rush it. So you you've got a certain time period where. You know, let's say you've got the two years to get it invested and five year total life of the fund. You could come down to the end of those two years. You got a million dollars left and you don't want to just spend that because it's there. You want to spend it because it's a really great investment. So, you know, and sometimes you get mixed reactions. Sometimes investors like, just put it in something. (laughs) And so we've had that. And then other time investors are like, hey, thank you. Because, you know, I say that the fund manager doesn't have a penalty. The penalty is that we don't get our management fees for that million. So when we're giving them back a million, like we're losing money, even though we don't necessarily have a penalty written into the contract like they do. Mm. So were you using a fund structure where you take a percentage of capital as it's deployed and then a management fee on top? Or for what you are willing to disclose, that is, how does your 
how does your fund work? Yeah, we've done it a lot of different ways. So everything from a, a management fee plus a split starting from zero, a management fee plus the upper fur return to the investor, and then a split after that. So yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of cool because I think some people think, oh, they're like, specific rules to how you structure even the fund. Like you have to be smart. Just like we talk about deal structure and how you put those together, you know, just like you want every structure to be smart for what you're using it for. And that's the same when it comes to funds. You want to have a fund structure that is a win for your investors and a win for you and makes sense for the types of deals that you're going to do. So for instance, if you've got a fund that is full of e-commerce businesses, you want to structure that differently than a fund that is full of SaaS businesses. And even that's going to be different from a fund that's full of content businesses. So could you explain the differences as far as your acquisition model or how you would view those businesses different in a fund and why you would separate them? Well, so what what I'm talking about is how you structure the fund with the investors. So if you've got a fund that has e-commerce what you're going to have in that case is, you know, that's different from the other two. I mean, there's a lot of intricacies. I don't want to bore them with too much uh, intricacies of, of like the, the, the funds themselves. But just to keep it kind of simple, you know, on an e-commerce fund, you've got inventory. So if you tell investors, all right, we invest this and we're going to give you a 15 percent mm-hmm. preferred return. It's going to begin on the day that we start. And really, you know, you're coming up in November, you're going to have to or you know, you're, you're buying the deal and, you know, in October, you're going to have to buy a ton of inventory. You need to you really can't structure. You don't want to structure it that way because you need time to build up cash or you need them to give you more cash or, you know, you've got to structure it so that you can pay for that inventory on a SaaS business. It needs to be structured so that you have money set aside for when you need to redo or update the software on a content business. You know, for instance, there's a cash difference between when you close the deal and that first check that comes from the affiliate network, which could be, you know, 60 days or sometimes 90 days after your close. So keep in mind, being mindful of how the deal works when you buy it. And then there's a whole different sort of circumstances that you want to consider on the exit and how your investors are paid on the exit of of those different deals. And so those are some of the things that we walk people through when they want to create a fund. But, you know, the funny thing about all of this stuff is, you know, with my first deals, made some mistakes and learned from them, but it was really walking through the dark, trying to figure this stuff out, bumping into things, realizing, oh, okay, you know, don't do that. Don't go that way. It's better to go this way. And so now even having done, and and so I spent a lot of time with people helping them do deals so that I can invest in their deals, helping them avoid a lot of the mistakes and, you know, it's a lot of fun, especially, I, I, you know, I know you want to talk next about offline versus online. I really love offline deals, but walking people through those is a lot of fun. Then as we started to create funds, what we realized is, oh, wow, like, you know, learning this stuff, because at first I didn't realize this, you know, like how we set up a fund that's in the e-commerce needs to be different from the SaaS and, you know, all of these little tidbits 
And so, in, in you know, how you raise the money, who you raise the money from, all those things are important. But that's what we walk people through when we're helping them create their private equity fund. That makes a ton of sense. And yeah, thanks for explaining so. that. I like to play devil's advocate and go a little bit deeper on some of these topics. So that makes total sense to me. I mean, I'm in the, I spend a lot of time in the e-commerce space. So setting aside a, or structuring a fund so you can handle inventory makes a lot of sense for me. One of my favorite sayings right now is capital is a fucking commodity. <laughs> and when I say this to people, uh, their eyes go wide because they don't really understand, I don't think, what that means. And that's because I spend so much time in this space. But you've just kind of walked through how money isn't just money. So you wouldn't necessarily raise one fund and buy all different types of business models or verticals, you really need to think through how you deploy that capital and how your returns work. So when you're paying out to keep the businesses running, right? That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining that a little bit further. That was super helpful. So let's talk just briefly about online versus offline. So brick and mortar businesses, you mentioned before, the first deal you had a great multiples around a one, just over a one times multiple, which is pretty amazing. How do you think about multiples with a brick and mortar business? Say, so a few years back, actually, I was looking at offline deals in the UK and I was seeing a lot of beauty salons with under a one times cash flow multiple. But when I dug into the deal, there was a lot of overhead and commitment that you were taking over, which is why the seller was willing to sell for under one times cash flow, because you'd take on the lease, you'd take on employees, you'd take on whatever else came with the business. So how do you uh, view or how do you think about an offline deal? So what would make a a good offline deal or something that you uh, would go after versus an online deal? Or how do you think about them? Yeah. So one of the big differences is, you know, you're doing a ton of filtering when you're looking at those deals. The really exciting thing is that you're right. You can find a salon that is a bunch of salons that are at a one multiple. What that does is it brings down all the salons and the key is filtering through it, all of the crappy ones. I mean, it's just the, the biggest difference is you want to look at these deals like you're looking at the whole internet marketplace. And so what that means is that the flipper deals are mixed in with the, you know, FBA broker deals. Like you realize that I've got to deal with a bunch of spammy, terrible businesses and then find that diamond in the rough. But the difference with the offline is that a lot of really great businesses are also going to be at a one multiple or maybe they're a one and a half multiple just because they're better, but they can't get a three multiple for sure. And then the other neat thing is I love the liabilities. If somebody has a business, you know, I've bought, you know, most of the offline, I would say the average age of offline businesses that I've bought is 30 years old. There is nothing like buying a 30-year-old business. Wow. And what can you do with the liabilities? So what I want to do with the liabilities is just take them over. And what I'm selling them on is that in, in, you know, in some cases, literally, I had a retail shop where I got paid to buy the business. So a lot of people talk about no money down, but I know of other deals where you literally can get paid to take over that business because you're saying, hey, I don't want to sign on the bottom line of, of this lease. It's getting you out of the lease and then I've got to get on it. So I need you to 
pay me. You made the money from last year. And, you know, I'm not going to make that money. I'm starting from scratch. I got to take on this liability with, you know, without me receiving anything. And then I hopefully will start to make money. And so one of the things that I love about a lot of these businesses that's much different from online is somebody who's owned a business for 30 years, they a lot of times don't need the cash. And it's just because they they're just a normal person. They've saved for retirement and, you know, they've got their 401k or their IRA that's self-directed. You know, they've got different things that they've done, just regular investments so that they could walk away. And the, one of the stories I like to tell is I had bought a tanning salon where, you know, I bought the business, I I introduced myself to the people that were in the plaza that we were in. And there was a retail shop that was right next door to us that, man, they just got a tremendous amount of traffic. We benefited from their traffic because, you know, it was just the overflow. And it was well known, one of those things been around for 20, 25 years, well known store in my town. And one day I show up to the salon, which, you know, at this point I had maybe four or five. So I wasn't there a lot. And I just came by to check on it. It probably been a few weeks since I've been to that location. And I see a store closing sign. And I walk in, I'm like, what's going on next door? And, you know, my manager's like, I don't know. They've been, you know, selling everything. I bought some stuff. It's rock bottom. You know, it's been, you put up the sign a couple of weeks ago. It's been up, it's been for sale. So I go in, I talk to the owner. I'm like, what happened? Is everything okay? She's like, yeah, everything's been great. I'm like, it, it was the business not making money. She's like, oh no, we made great money. And I'm like, so why'd you decide to close? And she was like, I, I want to retire. I'm getting older. I just want to retire. I'm like, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you sell the business? And she said, who would want to buy this? You're kidding. (laughs) And I'm like, you know that I bought the business next door. Why in the world would you just call me? You know, (laughs) but these are the, this is the thinking that's going on because they're not necessarily, you know, well, like I say, there's 1% of the information out there is about buying and selling businesses. Like 99% is all about just start and make money and start and make money. And that's what the goal is. That's your entrepreneur. I think sometimes we get into this world and we think, you know, once you start looking for this stuff, you find it. But when you compare the amount of information that's around, you know, building your business to get it ready for sale and the number of books at the bookstore on Amazon about starting a business from scratch, there's just absolutely no comparison. And so most people aren't in that mindset. And so I love finding those deals where, you know, if I could have gotten to her just a few weeks before, obviously I could have gotten that for nothing. Wow. That's amazing. That's so amazing. And and to be fair, with a brick and mortar type business, it's a very different process. You know, the buyer pool sometimes or most times even needs to be local. And then it, who's going to run the deal? So a lot of these brick and mortar retail locations specifically are often run by the founder. So that's one of the things they've enjoyed selling their products and meeting their customers. But when they want to retire, they think they have to shut the doors. So that's super interesting. And one other thing I want to touch on with offline deals that I know you've had a lot of experience with is 
getting not only creative on the deal structure, but creative on the finance side. So we get asked all the time in the e-commerce space, how can banks lend on this or what other lenders can we go to? And there's very few options because it's a lot of goodwill. There's small amount of inventory compared to the, the revenue that the businesses are doing. So for traditional lenders, there's not enough for them or not a lot for them to grab hold of as far as assets to take a lean on or control. So that's usually very different in a brick and mortar business. So have you ever used any sort of creative financing um, around specific assets in a business to take a deal down? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, a really, really great example uh, would be the salons because, you know, what, or the tanning salon deals that I did. That's what I realized is that each one of these has this equipment that I can go and get financed and I can use that as a down payment on the deal and ended up doing that in four different cases. And it was interesting. I actually sold those businesses as a package. And the way that I got those businesses were were off market was we did a lot of outreach to tanning salons and had the owners contact us. And, you know, we really had built a process for for making the offers and, and all of that. Well, after I agreed to sell, I had a really great deal come in that, you know, it was a great opportunity, but it was like, man, I don't really want to buy this because I've already got the sellers. I don't want to get them confused with adding additional one. I don't know if I want to own just one alone. And so this will be a fun one to dig into the specifics, but long story short, I make a lowball offer, get cursed out by the owner And it's like, okay, cool. Two weeks later, I get called by his wife. We're even further down the line in the package deal being sold. She says, hey, I apologize for my husband cursing you out. We're actually interested in the deal. And I'm like, well, at this point, like, I just think y'all should sell to somebody else. And, you know, it's not going to be a great deal. I want it even less now. And she's like, well, just make us an offer. And so I make an even lower offer, which if he was upset about the first offer, I just assumed he would say no. He says yes. And I mean, it was just it was pretty raw bottom. I'm like, you know what, if he's going to take if he's going to accept that, then I will buy it. So he it turns out was upset, which I didn't find out until after we closed the deal. And he sends out an email to the t- entire member base saying that they should cancel their membership. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty rough. Complete, <laughs> complete nightmares. And, and, and one of my favorite parts of the email was this guy, Ace Chapman, should change his name to the Ace Hole. <laughs> because <laughs> he's an asshole <laughs> so i was like oh man i gotta figure out a way to use the ace hole at some point but uh i, I haven't figured that out yet <laughs> but the crazy thing was i bought it at such a low price that i actually made more money by just closing that down going back it would have added so much complexity to try to add a business to the selling the roll-up that I was already in the middle of. And so what I did was went to those guys like, hey, these machines break down. You're going to have issues. I've got 20 machines that I can sell you at a great price as backup, you know, to have across all four of the other 
slots and added that to the deal at the last minute, which was actually easier to add on than the business and made money. And so, yeah, it turned out well. The, the, the saddest part was that he hurt his employees more than he hurt me. You know, like these people that have been with him t- over 20 years, one of them. And it's like, dude, like, <laughs> you know, I still got out of the deal and, and made money, but now the thing was closed and those people lost jobs. So that was an unfortunate side effect, but it wasn't, you know, of any fault of mine. Wow. That's amazing. And so, There's a ton that just happened there, but I want to break down one specific piece. As a dealmaker and broker myself, I would have definitely advised the same. So just to break out that one piece about adding a business versus Mm -hmm. adding equipment. So in the diligence process, you've got, was it four locations you said? Yeah, so you've got four locations. So they're doing diligence on these four locations. If you were to add in a fifth at the last minute, even if they were excited to do it, it would have extended the time at minimum, would have extended the time it took due diligence on the deal. Yeah. And this was a new deal for you. So you probably didn't even know all the skeletons in the closet on that deal either. So you wouldn't have had that much time to really get things polished up and ready to go. So by just having pulling out the machines at this, the equipment was actually a really good play at that point. So that's amazing. There's always more assets involved in a business than you think. And I'm constantly amazed when we have calls. I just had a call earlier today, actually, where a buyer was really digging deep into one part of a business we were taking a market to sell. And it was on the supply side. And some of the supply side questions they were asking made sense in a vacuum. But once we actually got through the process, like, okay, you've got some advantage here. And it turned out, yes, they actually had some leverage with a certain type of supplier. So they were mm-hmm. they were digging into these digging in with these questions to find out if they could actually use their own leverage. Now they're not going to pay more for that, of course, but there's always leverage that you can look for as a buyer. And that's the pretty cool story. So That's a really great example there. So could you give us an example of your biggest win? Maybe something like that where you've gone into a vertical and managed to sell the deal or was it a a great deal that you got into? It sounds like this deal is probably ticks both of those um, examples, but is there a biggest win or a biggest mistake that you'd like to, uh, to share with us? Yeah, I, I, since I, I talk about a couple of, uh, of of mistakes, I would still put the category of, you know, one of the lessons from that deal that I'm very adamant about now is I won't buy a business from somebody if I feel like they're not happy. And I've literally been with a seller and like, hey, I need to know that you want to do this deal and you're excited and you're happy to do the deal. You know, let's say that they're like, oh, like, I don't really want to do it, but, you know, I'll go ahead and and sell. It's like, nope, I don't want to do that. If you're not 100% in on this, let's just not do a deal. Find the right buyer. I'm not the right buyer if you're not happy with the deal that we're closing. A lot of that is because that deal where it's like, yeah, you know, I end up getting a, a really great deal. You know, like I mentioned the big downside was having that go of employees and that kind of thing, which, you know, just not a fan of, even if it's not my fault. But that is is something that I've added to my process. And so I still consider that a mistake slash learning mm, lesson of, you know, get with that. I would have sat down like, hey, listen, I need you to tell me you're happy. 
not just willing to close this. Now, a lot of the biggest kind of winning deals for us comes from strategic buys. When we can buy one business that has a huge benefit or access to a database or some kind of complementary business that we can tie together. And, you know, I think one of the ones that was neat is, you know, we bought a toilet business, which is a lot of fun. Right. Everybody wants to get in the toilet business. <laughs> and, you know, it had a, a ton of traffic. It had a small email database of folks, but the traffic was really awesome. And then later we came across a shower business. And between those two businesses, the interesting thing is that we thought, okay, like we're going to, in most cases, when we have those deals, let's say, you know, we have, uh, we have a hotel business like, uh, called openrooms.com and, and then, you know, combine that with the air or actually, you know, one of the things that we're closing on right now is a business that has about 500,000 followers in the travel space. And so you cross promote those and that becomes a win. For the deals that are SEO, sometimes it's tough to know how are you going to cross promote. So, you know, if you've got email database, in the case of open rooms, there's a, a million people in the email database and the other one, they've got half a million. So you can kind of force that. You know, when it came to the toilet business and the shower business, we did some links to both on, on both sites. We did a little bit of uh, promotion where we just added some showers to the toilet site. But the interesting thing was that it had no effect on the shower business, but it tripled the toilet business. So to be able to buy a site, and, and this is what's beautiful in the space, is in both of those deals, wow. we got sub three multiples. So let's say average across the two is a two and a half multiple. You're still making money. It's not like the first deal, you know, when we did the shower business, it, it's still, we're getting a great return. So what I'm always looking for, I don't want to have to spend a lot of money, especially on ads. You know, if I've got to spend $30,000, uh, and actually this is a, another great case is, you know, got a deal that was spending a ton of money on Facebook ads. And we basically bought a business that has those, it's basically a political blog that has that same demographic, has that crowd. And I'm trying to be careful about what I share here. That's why I'm like, <laughs> but basically <laughs> sure. out of the $30,000 Facebook ad budget, we're able to cut that to about 15 and in the e-commerce business by just using the access to the customers and the data of those customers in that second business. So we paid for the eyeballs that were in the business itself instead of paying, renting the eyeballs from Facebook and having to pay them, you know, 30 grand a month. So I think that's one of the places that's probably been missed the most is instead of me spending money on Facebook or Instagram ads or YouTube ads, I would put that effort and work into where can I find a blog, contact that owner, see if I can just buy the blog from them. And now I can get paid 30 grand a month to have access to those customers and still advertise my product. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's your gold right there. I think you could do that even with a brick and mortar business. You could do some crossover there if you can get their eyeballs. Obviously, if it was brick and mortar and you had one location, you'd want it to be location specific. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see, look at a business like that and say, what are the expense line items? For that example, it was ads. For earlier, like I was saying with those buyers, they were looking at supply side, getting margin there. It's almost like you want to have some sort of lever to get a better return. So you're not necessarily looking at the deal as it is. You're thinking forward, especially now that you have a fund with cash to deploy. You're looking forward into how do we make this an even better deal, an even bigger home run. So with your model, with what you're doing now on the acquisition side, are you predominantly looking to build these up and sell? Or are you looking to hold these businesses long term? What's the bigger picture if you can share or want to share? Yeah, so um, we've got several things that are exciting. You know, obviously, the goal now is taking a lot of the cash flow that we're getting from the deals that are in the fund and and putting those into other funds. And so that's the main reason that we want to help people start these funds is to kind of create expertise in these different verticals and for us to be able to put some, some capital into those funds. The other exciting thing that we're doing is we're taking a few of the deals and we're working right now to go public. Hopefully, if we get it done sometime this year, we'll we'll be able to make that happen. But that's something that we're working on right now with uh, an investment bank. Wow. And on the investing in other funds piece, so I know the search fund model is super popular. Um, A lot of MBA programs are are essentially recruiting people into search funds right now. So it's interesting that you bring up expertise. So are you looking for someone who's interested in a space or are you looking for someone who's been ideally an operator in a certain vertical or business model to take over or to engage and then get them to run that vertical or that fund? Well, the most important thing, sometimes having somebody that thinks they know a lot about a space can hurt you because we want somebody who's going to learn from a seller how to run the business and then begin to A-B test and, and figure out. You know, we live in a world now where knowledge isn't as important or trying to project something isn't as important as just like doing the testing to figure it out. And so the most important thing for us is that we get somebody that can handle the mechanics of managing a fund, managing the team that's running the fund, and then knows how to oversee the people that are running businesses. Because that manager isn't going to be running those specific deals. What we need is to get the roadmap from the seller, put it into our SOP process, get them to put somebody in place to run that business day to day and then go out and get the next deal. And so that's a little bit of like what it looks like to be that manager, but it's a different skill set. It's not saying, all right, you know, we want somebody who is an expert at starting SaaS businesses to run the fund while we might bring in somebody that's an expert at SaaS businesses to be a consultant or to be the manager of that specific deal. So uh, a little bit of a a different skill set. I love it. And how would you describe the skill set of that person? What what would make a good person for the manager of the fund type role? Yeah, I think it's somebody who is interested in deal making. 
enjoys negotiations, really good at networking because they need to be able to network on the side of generating deal flow and then network on the side of investors. And so a lot of what we do internally, what I want to do is duplicate that blueprint, you know, do all the things that we're doing to generate deal flow, but do it in this vertical or do it for this specific size of deals or for this specific niche for, you know, that fun. Do the same things that we're doing to network with investors, but, you know, do it for this fund and within your network to expand what we're doing. So it's a lot of those same dealmaker skill sets, but obviously applying it to a specific space. Wow, that's awesome. And that's really cool that you're putting a lot of effort into finding other other people to help create their own funds essentially and go do what you've done. So if people want to reach out to you and talk more about that or just learn more about you, what's the best way to get in touch, Ace? Yeah, I would say just learn more about what we're up to. Go to YouTube and search Ace Chapman. If you want to reach out directly, feel free to shoot me an email, ace at acechapman.com. I do get a ton of emails. Sometimes things go to spam. And so the best way is just to go to acechapman.com and fill out a form. And then we'll make sure that we get in contact with you. Awesome. Well, mate, this has been super awesome for me. I'm a deal nerd like you. So this has been a ton of fun. I know that people listening would have got a ton of value. And the good news is this isn't the last time we'll be talking. So we're actually working on a a podcast together as well, which we'll release shortly. So there's going to be lots more to talk about and we'll definitely dig into that tanning deal (laughs) a lot more. I've I've actually written that down to talk to you more about. (laughs) So um. Yeah, it's an entertaining story for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Maybe we'll talk about it more uh, off recording before we go record just in case, but um, I'm sure there's more to that story. (laughs) Thanks for jumping on the show, Ace. It's been awesome talking deals with you and I can't wait to do it again. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.